Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. When I think about what I want in terms of a relationship with a restaurant, I don't actually want reservations. I don't want to know that I can get in at 7.30 or whatever it is. I want to know that when I show up, they've got me taken care of. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. As the co-founder of online reservation watchdog, Eater, as well as reservation booker, Resi, Ben Leventhal has been at the center of all things dining for nearly 20 years. On this episode, we catch up with Ben about his latest company, Blackbird, a restaurant loyalty program that is rethinking the way hospitality and online culture converge. We talk about the founding of Blackbird and how restaurants are rapidly changing the way they make money through CPG and brand extension. We also discuss the early days of Eater and the biggest story that nobody is covering in food today. It's so great catching up with Ben, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Ben Leventhal, welcome back to Taste. Thank you, Matt. Good, nice to be here. Yeah, it's been about four years, and when we had you in the spring of 2019... It was like resi, 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 resi. Everything, everything was resi. Uh, soon after you left the company, you had sold it. Um, how, is there, how are things going by your assessment at resi? Something, a topic we talk about like all the time, how important it is. And, and really, you, big credit to you for, for creating it. Well, thanks. I remember when I was here, the deal was happening in the background and <laughs> I couldn't talk about it yet. Right. And I... <laughs> I kind of considered like maybe we should put this off, but it was just fun to have a conversation. But I remember, I remember exactly when we did that because it was sort of percolating, and it was almost that we could talk about it, but we couldn't. Um, it feels like a long time ago that uh, we spoke and that that sale took place. I think since then, you know, Resi's done incredibly well. I'm very proud of proud to see where it is today and how it's grown. Um, you know, once we landed the plane at Amex and also since then, looking at how it's developed into, I think, a pretty substantial brand in the space. Um, hopefully a brand that restaurants think of as a real um, partner. You know, we always wanted that to be the case in the early days and certainly through the sale and hopefully restaurants still believe that's the case. But, you know, I'm kind of an outsider and I'm just a fan in the seats now for the most part. And, <laughs> Good place uh, to be. To watch. Those are nice seats. They're definitely <laughs> not the cheap seats. And, um, you know, Resi is now a permanent part of our logo of our podcast. We've, we've rebooted our logo and it's there. And I put it there because it's really important and everyone uses it. It's it's really, and I think what I hear from chefs and restaurateurs is it's not really fucking them over. It actually is something that they like. Good. I want to ask you also, I mean, you founded Eater. Um you also worked in kitchen surfing, and and really, these are pro- like I liked kitchen surfing. That idea was cool, um, and really, I look to you as somebody who's really plugged in. And 
Back to the reservation, though, I want to ask you, what does that mean right now in our culture? I think that it has a higher level than ever. I think reservations have definitely taken on a life of their own. The idea of reservation drops is it makes sense given the landscape, but is also a crazy notion that that's where we have landed, which with reservations being these scarce, sought after things at that kind of scale. Um, You know, personally, I like to go out and eat and be spontaneous. So sometimes I feel that reservation culture, you know, is a little bit of a headwind on that behavior. Um, People booking up tables in advance, restaurants being less flexible, less able to accommodate walk-ins, last minute changes. It certainly makes sense from the restaurant business perspective. The more you can predict the, the, the shift, the better. I think um, hopefully things loosen up a little bit if I'm putting my consumer hat on. Yeah, and we'll get to Blackbird Labs, your new company, which is tapping into uh, the restaurant loyalty program through crypto, and we'll get into, you'll define it. I think I did a bad job just then. But <laughs> Ben, let me ask you just generally, what interests you about restaurant culture? You you know, going back to your days at Eater uh, and, and founding it around this obsession about restaurants back in the early 2000s, and now you're still in the space. You can't get out, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> I think it comes down to the fact that I see restaurants as brands that are much larger than the businesses that are being run. And that's always been a fascinating part of this business, of this industry, is that you have these these tiny little businesses with brands that are beloved and actually broad and well-known. And, and you look at the size of the business relative to what a restaurateur is able to do from a brand-building standpoint, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And, you know, that's always been... Even though with Resi and hopefully now with Blackbird, we're a little bit more on the front lines in terms of how restaurants can monetize that um, that circumstance, that quirk in the industry. That's always been my point of view where I've been coming from is these restaurants are way more interesting than we think. And they're way more dynamic. And if we think about them as entertainment brands or, you know, culture brands or luxury goods, products brands, then the whole industry starts to look different. And that's sort of always been the take that always been, I should say, sort of how I've looked at it and why our take at Eater in the early days was what it was and and uh, why we pr- approached Resi the way that we did and, and now how we're thinking about Blackbird. But that's the crazy thing about this industry. It's a trillion dollars this year in, in size. Wow. That's like uh, a, a number that we think about grocery in trillions. We think about rest, but there are very few industries that go into the trillions. Huge industry. Yeah. And at the same time, restaurant margins over the last 25 years have plummeted. Right. We know that to be the case, well-documented. And yet these brands are incredibly strong. I mean, you look at brands like Squirrel in Los Angeles. You look at Prune in New York. I mean, these are relatively small. These are just two that come to mind. Relatively small restaurants. You look at the P&Ls, and these are like under $10 million businesses, maybe more for Squirrel. But, man, their brand equity is like probably in the – 100 million if you do it? Exactly. Prune is a great example. It's a 20-seat restaurant that we, I think, will reopen some point soon. I walked by not too long ago and saw plenty plenty of activity. They got, like, private dining, I heard, there. That's what they're doing. Yeah, you might know that. Makes sense. Yeah. I, um, I think that the, that makes a lot of sense for them. Yeah. That that brand is huge. 
it, you think of brunch, you think of prune. You do. And you think of Gabrielle and you think of like this brand that, you know, I would buy what she's selling. It's it's a it's a lifestyle and like so many companies that with way more funding sell inferior products. One thing that I noticed that was a COVID observation for me is just how when restaurants did have to shift into different kinds of things to sell, the consumers were there for it. People bought yeah. all kinds of stuff from restaurants that made no sense. Like cocktail to go. Cocktails like, to go. Yeah. But that cocktails to go, sauces, dressings, yeah. produce. But my favorite examples here, um, one is, you know, John and Vinny's started selling like pancake mix. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't make any sense except if you think about John and Vinny's right. as broadly a luxury goods business. Absolutely. And and I think Chang was really quick to pivot and he talked about it on his podcast, David Chang, and how, you know, Momofuku is now a CPG company and a media company and the restaurants do well, but they're not the growth there. Chang was very quick uh, yeah. and in fact benefited from having had a lot of this thinking going, you know, well before t- early 2020. Yeah. Um, but he he moved very fast in there in that first half of the year and you know, the business reflects that now. Yeah. yeah, you can get those noodles at Target and they're great, the dry noodles. Um, I want to ask you, you're you're just always a media guy to me, like Eater and working at NBC. And I think you worked in like television before Eater. So let me ask you this. What's the biggest story in food in like restaurants that no one's covering, Ben? The biggest story that nobody is covering right now is I think the end of the celebrity chef era. Um, the end of the chef being the point. And when you look at how restaurants are designed and conceived of now, I think it's starting to feel dated to put a chef front and center. And uh, I don't know if that's a new idea or not, but I think that is the big story that we're going to see play out over the next couple of years is chefs chefs are going to not be the headline anymore. Yeah, I mean, you're totally on point from my point of view, you look at like somebody like Amanda Cohen at Dirt Candy who has totally stepped out of being the chef of her restaurant and is literally letting her staff, you know, dictate many elements of the of the space, but also with media, not maybe just Amanda's personality, you know, she's not like out there pitching herself. I mean, she, she'll definitely do interviews, but I agree. It's like definitely a model looking forward. And I th- it also goes back to the restaurant as a brand, you know, is above the chef. I actually think horses will be a great test here to see what happens next. It may survive. The incredible part of the story is that that restaurant may survive. And I've talked to tons and tons of people about this, and I'm sure you have too. And when you say to somebody, you know, do you think this restaurant is going to be open in 12 months? Most people say yes. The only people that are saying no are the people that have been writing about chefs for the last five, 10, 20 years. But everyone else is a little bit almost confused by the question, which I think is an incredible sort of signal about yeah. where we are, that a restaurant like that, that has a, 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 a controversy like that might survive because the brand of the restaurant, the idea of a restaurant is no, is no longer about a couple of individuals mm-hmm. in the kitchen anymore. It's, 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 
sort of transcended that. Mm-hmm. And I think with the celebrity culture of Los Angeles really driving that as a hot table, I mean, and L.A. like has always had been a little bit more flexible with controversies in terms of, you know, people, redemption stories. <laughs> it's, it, is a, it is a town built on redemption stories. Yeah. Flops becoming winners. <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. That's a cool – that'll be interesting to follow, and it's a, it's a tough story. Um, how do you think Eater's doing right now? I feel like you founded it. You left Eater – many years ago, but you still read it. How's it doing? I think it's doing okay. I think, um, I, I think eaters, you know, turned into a, a big broad general interest publication, which is, which is cool to see as the, you know, as a founder of it. It's cool. I feel like that's more positive than you said in 2018. <laughs> so I, you've either changed as a human being, um, uh, <laughs> we've been through a pandemic, but I also like that, uh, that you say that because I, I, I thought about when you said it last time and you were a little tough on them and like, listen, you have every right to be tough on something you found and you probably have deep connection to it, but I like what you said. I don't really want to be tough on it anymore. I think it's do, it's got a, a role in the conversation and I think the brand has held up, and I'm proud of that. You and Lockhart were very much like, we'll never run a recipe on Eater, and uh, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> with it, with, is, the, is, that cookbook, is that cookbook in your shop? Yes, that's the book by Hillary Dixer Canavan. I, it's not us, but I've not seen it, but I hope Hillary comes on the show. I'd like to talk to her about it. So it's cool. And, like, listen— the video content and what you're finding on TV and and the broadcast is just eater is just big. It's big there. It is big, and and everyone knows you know recipes sell on television. So obviously there's something going on there. <laughs> um, but enough about your past. I want to move this conversation to the future because Blackbird uh, has been interesting. You were definitely operating in a stealth mode for a while, and then you kind of launched it recently. And I asked you to come in. You were cool enough to talk about it. Um, I would like to know first, I have a lot of assumptions about what you're doing, and we can go over that um, tied to NFTs and crypto. But honestly, tell me, Ben, what is Blackbird in a a nutshell? So Blackbird is a platform that powers loyalty, membership benefits, and ultimately lots of other things for restaurants. And we're focusing on direct connectivity between restaurants and guests. And I think the key observation that we've made uh, is that restaurants and guests are not particularly well connected today. And if you look at the average restaurant on an average night, they don't really know who's there. And to me, this is a big part of why restaurants' profitability has plummeted. And it's a big part of what we think ultimately is the solution to all this and hopefully helps shift the paradigm in restaurants Mm -hmm. and helps restaurants become much more economically sustainable. Uh, That is to say, them learning who their guests are. So when when you say loyalty, um, obviously, I, the first thing I, that comes to mind is obviously the uh, the subway punch card that we all had in 1991. You know, when you go to a restaurant ten times, you get something free. Um, are you saying that Blackbird is going to get people the return for incentive? Is that one part of it? Absolutely. And it's funny that you bring up that punch card because we talk about punch cards a lot. It was actually a stamps card. I'm going to be clear. I don't know why (laughs) I stumbled on that one. Everyone who knows Subway had stamps. So stamps, you know, there's the the, stamps, it's punches, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, kind of adhesive stamps before the ink stamps. Yeah. All the same thing, which is (laughs) buy 10, get one free. Right. Um, And we talk about this a lot. It's fascinating to me why that product doesn't exist as technology. Um, if you think about it, restaurants really don't have anything they could deploy if that's what they wanted to do is say, show up 10 times, we'll buy you a drink. Um, so part of what we think about is something that simple, is this question and opportunity of 
how do you get closer to customers who have already shown an interest in being a good customer of the restaurant? How, how, how do we help restaurants make their most valuable customers more valuable? This is about customer lifetime value. This is about driving growth of top line revenue. Um, this is about creating some daylight between the costs structure of a restaurant, which and we all know costs are going up yep. and they're going up at an alarmingly uh, high rate. This is all about thinking about costs less as the only lever for profitability and thinking about growing top-line revenue mm-hmm. by growing the value of customers. Right, and, and just the repeat clientele um, clearly drives top-line, and if you give them an interesting incentive or membership program. Um, I'm hearing a lot about VIP, like customers who are considered like the the real um, – uh, I would call them uh, the, uh, VIPs or, or just like frequent visitors. What does a VIP deserve then right now in 2023? I think a VIP de- deserves direct, immediate access to the restaurant. And by access, I don't mean a reservation at 730 on two minutes notice. I mean a direct line to the restaurant to make sure that person has the kind of relationship with the restaurant such that they know when they show up, they're going to get sorted. When I think about what I want in terms of a relationship with a restaurant, I don't actually want reservations. I don't want to know that I can get in at 7.30 or whatever it is. I want to know that when I show up, they've got me taken care of. It's going to be fine. I would trade the opportunity to know that anytime I show up, I'm not going to wait too long. I would mm-hmm. trade that for making reservations. If I If a restaurant says to me, look, just show up. We'll take care of you in 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but we promise like we'll make, make it happen. I will trade that and I will never make a reservation ever again. Because I think that's all you want is when you walk into a restaurant, there to be some recognition for somebody to say to you, hey, it's nice to see you again. We got you. Okay. When you say got you, this is great, Ben, because I think it's you're, you're drilling down into hospitality. And you talked to like Will Gadara, who's been on the show, about what hospitality means, a lot of different definitions. When you say you got, got when a restaurant's got you, um, do you mean just like knowing what you like? Do you mean like having some, some VIP treatment? I mean the idea that somebody's looking out for you. Got it. And I think that's what it means to be a regular, is to know that you're going to get sorted out, that the house is looking out for you, that the house appreciates you being there. And I think that can take on many different forms. It depends on the restaurant. It depends on the night. It depends on how many people you are. Right. You know, when you show up with 10 people, that's a different story than when you show up with one person. Um, but it's just that recognition of being somebody who the restaurant is super excited to see. And I think that we can help restaurants make that a lot more scalable than it is today. I like that you're being more spiritual about this in in the beginning. I know there are details because for me, like as my personal, I would like to be taken care of in this way. I'm like, I show up, you know what I like, and you're going to say, would you like this from last time is one example. Another would be like giving me some shit for free. Like having some comps sent out, that to me feels like you know who I am. It does not have to be a big item. It could be a round of drinks. It could be a dessert. And I also would like some way to like remember the restaurant. I don't know if it's like a gift, but it depends on the obviously the level. Um, but like some kind of gift to take away. I'm just like thinking this is like my, like well, this would be cool. Do you want that at your neighborhood spot that you go to twice a week, three times a week? Definitely not. So this is a great call. Like, I, But a place that I maybe go to quarterly, but a place that I maybe it's like a check average per person. It's like 150. It's like a pretty nice like 
if I'm going to celebrate, I have a couple places I like going to on that level. But yeah, I don't. I, that's a good question, Ben. So what do you mean by that? Well, the, the point is, I think for every restaurant, that idea of VIP, that idea of hospitality is a little bit different. Right. And the place that you go to three times a week, sometimes you want to go and actually not have a drink. I mean, you know, sometimes it's a Monday night and you've been you've been out for four nights prior and it's, you know, the party season or it's like the fall and everybody's back in action and you're just looking for like a night to exhale. Around a free drinks shows up, you're like, yeah. ugh. I'm going to do this again. Yeah, it's a good call. <laughs> you know, so I think it really depends. It really depends. I think personalization in restaurants is important, but I also think it's a little bit of a placebo, meaning like I think restaurants send out free dessert because they don't really have a better marketing lever than that. Mm -hmm. Free dessert is restaurants, you know, loyalty programs. Yeah. And I think it's it's sort of a blunt force object and we can be a lot more elegant with it. Um, if we give restaurants some tools to think about it in a little bit more of a systematic, mm. uh, in a little bit more of a systematic way. I love that you've like said, okay, Matt, your, your ideas are like kind of the basic, <laughs> basic hospital, uh, keys of hospitality and there's more to it. And, and I just want to know, and maybe, and maybe, uh, you can talk about a little bit about your, your collaboration with, with Morgensterns and bananas and just like unpack, I like to get a little more like, what do you mean by beyond like the freebies and the comps? So Morgensterns is doing a program at their new shop on uh, Rivington Bananas. And the idea there is to recognize their most devoted customers as friends and family and to create a program that just gives them better access to the shop. And this program has started with selling a $33 friends and family membership. Yep. And in, in exchange for that, um, 30, for your 33 bucks, you get, you had access to the scoop shop. Sorry, it's a soft serve. So to the, to the, it's soft, vegan, right? Plant -based? Vegan, plant-based soft serve. Yeah. And it is delicious. Um, I'm biased, but it yeah. is delicious. No, I think there's amazing plant-based uh, yeah. soft serve out there. It's great. Uh, so you have a membership uh, and you show up during friends and family and you can have as much ice cream as you want. Okay, so it's 33 once or per month? Per month. 33 one time. Oh, one time. So it's a one time 33 and your friends and family and you get what? You get all the ice cream. Well, so what Nick da did when this is, I think, you know, Nick is an incredibly good marketer and, and operator and um, it's exciting to work with him because he helps us see how these things are supposed to work. Um, for $33, you get your membership. Initially, you had free reign of the scoop shop of the ice cream shop for a couple of weeks while they were doing friends and family, while they were sorting it out. Um, and what he's going to do is over time create opportunities to let his members kind of get on the inside. So I think next week members get to taste new flavors for a Friday afternoon on the house. Um, they're getting it. They're getting the invite to that. You know, nobody else is going to be able to do that. And he's also thinking about developing ongoing benefits for them as well. But the reason I love this is because he's taking the idea of friends and family and completely turning it on its head. Friends and family, in the traditional sense, is this one-off moment where a restaurant has all their people put all their all their friends into one email list, and they send out a blast. Sometimes the PR company does it. They send out a blast that says, we're so excited that we're about to open, and please come and try the restaurant, and it's on us. And they send out this email, and everyone comes, and it's a mess because it's friends and family, and they never use the list again. Yeah, it's just like one shot. No, so call, so good call. Like it's it's definitely like a moment to maybe get some social interaction, but it's usually like a way to like make sure their kitchen staff is not fucking up. 
So you're taking what in theory are your most devoted yeah. customers, the most valuable audience that you have, you're sending them a one-off opportunity to connect, and you're never communicating with them again in that context. Yeah. So that's what I love about what Nick has done with this program is he's completely flipped it. He said, you guys are the most engaged people we have. We need an ongoing relationship right. with you guys. Yeah. We need to make this a core part of what we do is to engage with people that are most excited to engage with us. That's so cool. So the 33, was it like limited an amount of friends and family? Um, well, we can get into it. Is, it. is it tokens? Is it NFTs? It's NFTs. Great. Um, they are, um, they're really just membership cards. Yeah. Um, In digital currency. Digital right? yeah. cards Card, of sorts. Yeah. Uh, not currency because they're not tradable. Oh, right. Sorry. I'm, um, yeah, totally. But they're membership cards and they do exist on the blockchain for, you know, Web3, um, Web3 enthusiasts. Um, and yeah, it's a one-time, one-time fee. Um, I think he set an initial limit for them. And I think the idea is to release some new ones in the coming uh, in the coming weeks and months. That's neat. So if you have a $33 membership, can you bring friends with you too to friends and family? I think that the I think that the membership was non-transferable. Okay. So you it's basically just you and you only can get into the shop, I see, for these special events. It makes sense for a scoop shop, it makes sense for a slice shop, it makes sense for these fast casual spots. And I, I just really look forward to seeing how you evolve it to like different styles and different formats. Well I have two Two ideas um, that are that are coming. Great, um, and you'll sort of see as we release rest as restaurants come onto the platform over the coming months. These will um, be part of those launches. One is for restaurants that focus on wine. Um, wine, you know, is this thing in restaurants where uh, they charge corkage when you bring in bottles from outside because they want to make money on the wine that they've already purchased. So. What if a what if a restaurant for an annual membership fee waived corkage mm. and created a program where they could give wine people better access to the restaurant by doing so? I think that's a great way to think about memberships in a fine dining context. Yeah, I mean, it's really smart. I mean, we think about like Peking Duck House is like the place you go when you want to crack bottles and have that fun low corkage night. But if you can get a membership, yeah, for like a place that you love the food. Yeah. It makes sense. It's just, it's got to be at a level that's high enough, right? For the restaurant? Yeah, like to make sense, especially for those folks who will be coming in regular. Yeah, of course. You know, it has to be a price of the re that works for the restaurant, and right. there has to be value for the consumer, of course. But um, I think those things are easily easily addressed. So NFTs, it's like the thing, the art is usually bad, though. I love bananas art. It's very cool. But I, don't, I it's the art is so bad, and, like, I feel crypto tough, tough, tough hang with crypto these days. <laughs> but um, I guess my question for you, Ben, is this was clearly presented and your company was founded well before this kind of crash down on NFTs. Uh, are, do, you have a, do you see a future in NFTs? I do see a future in NFTs. I see a future in blockchain technology. Um, I think what we've seen so far is what we always see with emerging technologies, which is there's a couple of kernels of stuff that's good and the rest of it's junk. Um, the key thing about all of this and all of this being crypto, quote unquote, crypto web three, web three yeah, is it's technology. It's not end consumer product. And the mistake that have people have made is thinking about it as end consumer product. It's tech. It's like cloud computing, which is an analogy, you know, I've used before, but, um, the question is how do you point that at 
good consumer use cases and create magical consumer product. It's not going to be the, the, the it's not going to be the end state. We have to build things on top of it that, that are really cre- consumer focused facing. Sorry, they're really consumer facing and things that yeah, there's like some bit of marketing because like crypto and Web three lost a lot of marketing equity with like the crash of it and like kind of like the bad vibes around it in general. I think the only the only uh, brand that has done a worse job at marketing itself is New Jersey. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> So good. And Jersey's turning around, baby. Got to check out the North Jersey Shore. My sister-in-law is a three of there. <laughs> Shouting her out. No, I, you're, that's funny, but it makes sense. Um, and, you know, I look to you with really, like, a lot of, like, like my eyes are open because when you launched Resi and the way the app worked, originally, and especially when you were, like, selling tables, which is a different model that you kind of retreated from quickly, it was different, and you were like plugged into something and the way it works with the maps is different. But now we like use it. It's normal. Yeah, I think, look, I have enjoyed in my career thinking about things differently and um, hopefully creating consumer products that feel magical for yeah. one way or another. The difference with Resi, the rule that we set up was you had to have a reservation in two taps. That was the sort of opportunity from a product standpoint. So we have some ideas about some things that are going to be magical for Blackbird, but we're just trying to move. move it's forward. cool, man. I'm, I'm rooting for you. And, and I just, I'm really fascinated by the, 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 the mind power and the intellect you're putting into restaurants. It's cool. Let's move on to a little more general conversation about like where you're going. Like I, I, I let me ask you straight up. Do you have a single favorite chef in America right now? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't take the bait. Okay. Who who excites you? Well, I think I think there's some exciting restaurants that were that are out there. Um, there's exciting formats that are out there. Um, I mean, I'll give a shout out to Raf's on Elizabeth Street, which yep. is a place right next that, to uh, Tom and Jerry's. Next to Tom and Jerry's, where a lot of the you know web uh, <laughs> web, web one, one. Com- web one companies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're born, I Gawker guess. Gawker Media. Gawker Media. Yeah. Uh, Raf's keeps, keeps like, pulling me back in. Yeah. I'm totally charmed by that place. I think it's awesome. I have been to uh, Made on uh, Spring Street a couple of times in two weeks because another place that mm-hmm. um, I'm charmed by. Look, I think we're post-chef, and that's not in any way uh, – meant to be disrespect to chefs. I think the cooking in the United States has never been better. I think the creativity, the vibrancy, um, the experimentation um, is has never been better. But I think we're post-chef. And so, you know, it's not about, I think, those names. But that being said, I do think, you know, Kwame Onwachi at, at Tatiana definitely deserves, uh, deserves a nod. I mean, that place is awesome. Mm-hmm. And the energy of that place is awesome. And I, I don't think you can kind of get that meal um, many other places in New York right now when you put it all in the food and the energy and the setting. Um, so I guess that's another Those one. Those are great calls. And and I'm sure there's many other. You are a famous Keith McNally whisperer in, in some sense. I feel like you, you, got a, you got Keith on the phone sometimes. and <laughs> <laughs> You laugh, but I think you do. Let me, what's your assessment of Keith's empire right now in New York? I think early Eater days, you certainly covered Balthazar and Odeon. Though Odeon was not cool when you launched Eater, which is a, a whole conversation because I feel 
Odeon's resurgence has been super interesting with like Gen Z because that place in like 2003, I mean, no one was going to that place. It's been amazing to see Odeon and what's yeah. happened there. It's also, Odeon is like Bemelman's Bar. I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's going on up there, but <laughs> yeah. Bemelman's Bar is another place that's been there forever, was very sleepy in, to, in yeah. 2003. It was like where you t- your parents like stayed, you know? It's a line out the door, literally. There's yeah. an hour wait to get in there. Yeah. Um, thanks to TikTok. TikTok. And thanks yeah. to some savvy marketers. Yep. Um, what do I think about Keith's empire? Is yeah. that the question? Yeah, please. I think Keith's empire is sort of maturing and evolving the right way. Um, what I mean by that is it's nice to see that he's finally finding some scale around some of the businesses that have been one-offs for a very, very long time. You know, Keith is is the absolute best when it comes to building restaurants that people naturally connect to, that people are happy to be in. The thing about Keith for me is Balthazar has always been my happy place. And it's about the place. It's about the room. Yeah. It's about the all-in experience of Balthazar. And um, when Balthazar was celebrating his 25th anniversary last year, I think, um, you know, I was able to, Rezzy, Rezzy gave me a couple of column inches to write about what makes Balthazar special. Mm. And it's, and what I found talking to former maitre d's and people who work there now, because I really wanted to talk to the, to the insiders about it. It's just a room full of incredible details. And that's Keith. That's the point of Keith McNally is that the details are the whole show. And he's not thinking about scale. He's not thinking about 17 locations and putting, making this deal with this developer and licensing this thing. But I think as he's grown older and as the restaurants have grown older and time has gone on, I think that's become more of a focus for him. And I'm very happy to see that be the case um, because I think these are obviously incredibly durable, valuable brands. And the idea that there's now a couple of pastis with more coming and that there may be more Balthazars coming someday, I'm, I think that's incredibly exciting. And Mineta, of course, you got to say, yeah. like, always seeing Mineta on television. It's literally one of the most shot restaurants in all of TV. Um, and it goes on with him and, and thanks Ben for sharing. Cause it's cool that you, that your point of view is, is really, is really smart because it seems like Keith, um, you know, the P&Ls probably were looking pretty good, but they could have been better by, you know, selling in Dubai, but he didn't do that. And like, I look at like a lot, I respect restaurants as brands, as to your point, who, um, who, who focus on the details and like, you know, the operator you see, cause Keith's in his restaurants from what I could tell when he can be, if you look at his feed and like, that's the key, right? Being in the restaurant and being the operator, either the, sh- the chef, but mostly the owner and operator. It's been fun to spend time with Keith over the years in some of the restaurants and this is really the case with any class A operator because they're so good at detail. But when you sit down with an operator like that and something's wrong, <laughs> there is no conversation. They cannot focus on anything except the one tiny detail that's off in the room. Yeah. And until that's addressed, until that's fixed, like the conversation at the table comes to a standstill. Well, they literally leave. They literally they either leave or they get up and fix it themselves <laughs> or they can't think about anything else. You're talking to them and there's no, they're not hearing it because all they're focusing on is that the coffee showed up with the espresso saucer and not the Americano saucer. 
God, I, love, I mean, restaurants are such theater, and and really, it's just when you talk about it and you get going, it's cool. Like you got stories, and it's like this is theater. This and everyone talks about this stuff. Like go to any podcast, and we're getting a little meta here, but like go to any podcast, menswear podcast, you know, comedy podcast, and it's like restaurants are always at the top of the top of the lineup of conversation. It's where we spend our time. Yeah. Restaurants are where we spend our free time. Yeah. And and we're not. This is not just a coastal conversation. This is happening in like places all over, like Chicago, Houston, Sarasota. I mean, there's restaurants that are that build community, but also it's where we want to go for a happy place, as you just said, about Balsar. I mean, this is another podcast in and of itself. But <laughs> the amount, the the bar on food in tertiary markets has gone up so much in the last decade. I mean, you used to look at a market like um, Houston. And the top of the market, uh, to, to this compared to the top of the market in New York from a, sort of a sophistication and a sort of nuanced perspective, like you didn't really, you couldn't really get that kind of restaurant in Houston um, or Seattle or Chicago. Well, Chicago's, you it's know, primary, we'll, we'll, but we'll give Chicago Philly, credit. Let's think Philly, Philly is a great example. DC. Yeah. The bar is so high yeah. in these markets now. Yeah. I mean, you can get an incredibly good meal in a great, great restaurant, meaning like well-built, well-designed, well-orchestrated in pretty much any city in the country now, which is kind of awesome. I mean, it makes it harder, obviously, to break in. And, you know, now, like yeah. when you open a restaurant, the bar is a little bit higher. But that's that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and... Uh, and I think a big part of why everyone's talking about restaurants all the time. I agree. And all this ad, I think like just the diversity of chefs in these markets has really changed the game. I mean, you see modern Korean restaurants in Houston, or you'll see a restaurant with the, you know, focus on Trinidadian cuisine in um, not just Miami, but in Florida, around the state. Two examples, but like it's diversity of, of, our, of our country has something to do with it and also diversity of our interests uh, in food. It's, it's nice to see... Um, all types of restaurants succeed. Totally, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get flack from my Chicago comment, but but I do actually think even in Chicago, like 15 years ago, Chicago was about you know deep dish pizza and Alinea, yeah. and now when you go to Chicago, like what Kevin Bame has been doing with Boca, what Brandon Sotokov is doing with Hog Salt. Those restaurants stand up to any restaurants anywhere in the world. Oh, my God. And let's not sleep on Detroit. I feel like Chicago gets a lot of love, but, man, Detroit is the next great food city in America. Saying it here, it's such an exciting place, just saying that. Detroit's got—the wonderful thing about Detroit is that the cost structure there is is different. Yeah. And it gives them room to be creative and to stay loose which is why that city feels so awesome. Yeah, it's kind of like how L.A. was um, in the early 2000s when L.A. felt a little loose because you could definitely cost structure-wise. Totally. But now L.A. is, like, super expensive. L.A. Tough. is proper tier one, you know. Ugh, it's tough. Big swing kind of restaurant. Um, one more question. Who do you see leading the way in New York City in the next 10 years? I know you're... I'm buying the the chefs are are kind of on the out, and I, I I like that point of view. But is there like a could be a restaurateur, it could be an operator, it could be anyone who you really want to see move along in the future? Well, I think the the new guard is people like Kwame yep. and uh, the women who are running rafts, um, and um, you know Brendan Sotokoff, mm -hmm. and um, you know certainly the major food group guys. These are 
these are the the teams that are leading us forward. Um, Calvin and the team at Bonnie's, definitely. You know, JP and Elliot. I don't mix. I'll add a couple names there. I think Claire DeBoer at Jupiter and Sissinghouse. Yep. as well. Claire and Annie. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. It's an exciting city, New York. You know, a lot of people go up and down on the city, but you live here. You you were born here. It's a good city, right? It's the best city. <laughs> <laughs> ben, one last question. Everyone has taste in their life, and everyone is a tastemaker. Now, you obviously are a tastemaker for restaurants. You founded Resi and Eater. But is there a topic that you feel you're a tastemaker in that maybe we don't even know about? Well, this is going to show you what kind of one-track mind I have. It, but I do collect restaurant memorabilia, and I've gone way deep down the rabbit hole on eBay and on Etsy and on even in the auction houses on artifacts from restaurants of the 20th century. And uh, I don't know if you'd call me a tastemaker of that genre, but I am for sure obsessed with that stuff. And I love, if you look at a restaurant like 21 Club or Tavern on the Green or um, uh, the Store Club, and you look at how the brand evolved, you can see the phases. You can see the ups and the downs and the ebbs and the flows. And if you look at branding at, say, Tavern on the Green, you can see exactly where it went wrong. You can see exactly where that was. Was that like 1985? <laughs> it was probably right around Like there. the 80s is when that place went. You I mean, can see yeah. they they lose course on the brand, and it exactly lines up with when the restaurant That's started so to fail. so interesting. And is there like a grail or something you really seek out, a piece of memorabilia on your watch list? <laughs> well, early— um, early stuff from 21 Club is uh, – there's there's a fair amount of it, but um, I tend to, uh, to, to like to get that stuff. I also really love um, uh, guidebooks from the very first part of the 20th century. Mm, that era, cool. You can read about restaurants when there were still a lot of speakeasies. That's – If you get a guidebook, if you get sort of like a, a sort of boutique – guidebook to New York published in like 1939, you can kind of, you get such a great sense of what it was like to dine out in New York at that time. That's, and you get the addresses too, so you could actually see the Exactly, exactly. That's so interesting. Have you been down to Bonnie Slotnick in the East Village? No. Bonnie Slotnick has definitely some old guidebooks and, you know, she's a cookbook, it's a cookbook store. Um, It's like on East 4th Street. I'll go see her this week. You should go check it out. It's a cool store. I feel like this is your book, Ben. I feel honestly like I, I think. What's the book? Just show your, me what it is. It's it's photographing your collection. It also oh. gives you a great example. It gives you a great opportunity to buy more shit. Well, you, <laughs> then, then I'm in. Let's then you're it. in. Okay. Ben Levenfall, thank you for joining Taste. Always a pleasure. Ozette Babor Winter, this is Taste. Hi. Great to see you. Great to be here. Really exciting. I, I So much to cover. You know, you're the uh, senior drinks editor at Food & Wine. Big job. <laughs> we can talk about drinks all day. We will also talk about, you know, travel, some cookbooks. But what does this title, what does it all add up to? What is your purview? What is your remit? 
Oh, okay. So I handle drinks coverage for foodandwine.com. I like to joke that I've had pretty much every job one can have at Food and Wine. I've <laughs> I've had two different print positions since I started about four years ago, and now I'm on the digital side. So yeah, I produce our drinks content for the site, which includes wine, spirits, coffee, non-alcoholic beverages. Wow. Uh, yeah, that is that is under NA my... is like a theme here. There's like it's like you go to Erewhon and there's like 900 SKUs of NA. I went to Erewhon recently because my best friend moved to Santa Monica and I lost myself there. <laughs> it was very overwhelming. Yeah, you because you see all the brands that you've been pitched. You see the brands that are new. It just it it's must the shoppy shop. It is the shoppy shop of drinks. <laughs> it's amazing. So let's do lightning round. I, I really want to go through some categories. And really, the question is, what excites you? And so the first question is cocktails. What excites you about cocktails? What excites me about cocktails? I I mean, there are some great canned cocktails out there. I nice. have some favorites. I yeah. love, yeah, I mean, I love Tip Top. I love a couple of those kind of really well-made, um, smaller batch cocktails. They're really good. I mean, what about in the bars? Are you, are you like, exhausted by certain styles of cocktails? Are you excited by certain styles of cocktails? Yeah, I really love when menus break things out into non-alcoholic, low ABV, and then, like, a stronger ABV. So I think there are a couple of bars that do a really good job of this. I One that comes to mind is like Jupiter in New York does a really nice job. I think they break it out as like spritzes or something like that. But being able to kind of have a bartender guide you through how much alcohol you're consuming at, with every drink is really great because at the end of the day, like you don't really know always how strong something is going to be. You don't want to like sit and do the math of like what that's going to look like. Yeah. So I think um, it really excites me when bars are really transparent about dosing that way. Let's talk about cocktails plus cannabis. It's a it's a topic that has really evolved, obviously, since decriminalization has really taken over our country in the past five years. But what's exciting you there? I mean, everything. I love the culinary cannabis space. It There's just so much innovation and so much passion and people are being really thoughtful about it increasingly, you know, in terms of I can talk all day about brands that I think are doing a great job of working with producers or creating like closed loop edibles. There, there are folks doing amazing things in the F&B space with, with cannabis. So I think it's that thoughtful sourcing that yeah. I get really into. Man. So is this is related, but I think when decriminalization really hit, it, there was like a, there was a worry, I think from the big alcohol brands like Bacardi mm -hmm. and all those guys were thinking like, our business might be fucked. Now, <laughs> how is this like netted out? I mean, I actually moderated a panel last, uh, last week about this kind of question. And I think increasingly, it's not so much that cannabis infused spirits are competing, quote unquote, with regular spirits. It's that it's a it's an alternative if you aren't looking to consume alcohol, but you still want some kind of buzz or you want to like hold a drink that's not just seltzer or non-alcoholic, you can have that. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who see low dose cannabis beverages as a great alternative. I think like one that comes to mind is CAN, which is C-A-N-N. -N. Mm -hmm. They do these like two and a half milligram seltzers, and I've written about them, and I think they're like a perfect cannabis beverage because you're not going to get super high, but it's still like a sessionable cannabis drink. Speak for yourself. 2.5 can knock my ass out. <laughs> 2.5 THC and 5 CBD is like yeah. you can continue to have a conversation. 
Yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah. But let's move on to coffee. Uh, a microtopic here. What are you What are you excited about about coffee? Good instant coffee. Oh, There's wow. yeah. I feel like instant. Co- I did an instant coffee story when I first started at Food and Wine back in 2019, and I was relooking at the category a couple of weeks ago actually because there are so many new like roasters are paying attention to that segment, and I think it's because people are traveling. Yeah. I think there's a lot of room for innovation. People are figuring out how to make instant coffee that doesn't taste like sawdust, and that's really cool. <laughs> so I've definitely dipped my toe in the instant game. Um, I just think, yeah, it's great for a pinch. If you're in a pinch, you gotta you, gotta, mm-hmm. you can use instant, but still. right or like on a flight, and you don't want yeah. like Delta's whatever coffee. So yeah, Delta's whatever coffee is not my choice. <laughs> Are there any roasters that come to mind that you like? Right now, yeah, making coffee. I love Partners. Yeah. I think they do great work. Um, they're Australian, so they really know what they're talking about, and they're fairly small. I go to the Partners in Williamsburg pretty often. Love yeah. that space. Um, yeah, I'm originally from Princeton, and there's Small World Coffee there. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like all of my college interviews at that cafe, yeah. but I really love their coffee. Too. You love their. You have that like because we have those connections to totally. certain roasters. You know, it's not just about the coffee; it's about the environment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, wine big. Mm-hmm. Big topic. Uh, what do you? What's going on in the world of wine right now? What is it going on? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like at any moment you can say X is a trend in wine or X is a trend that's over in wine, right. which, you know, we're talking about natural wine or grower champagne or, you know, bottled spritzes that sometimes involve wine. There's just so much there that I think something that's helpful for me to keep in mind is something could feel over or overdone through my lens as a millennial who lives in New York City and works in this industry. And then I'll go and spend time somewhere else in like a different market and be like, oh, yeah, no, people are like starting to talk about pet nats here. Or like this bottle shop has three natural wines and like that's normal And that's like exciting. And so like some may shade natural wine as a trend that's like fading out, whatever. Some. Shading natural wine is as boring as saying you only drink natural wine. Agree. Well said. Thank (laughs) you. It's just I'm tired of it. Like I feel as though people are just picking a stance just to pick a stance. It's it's very – it's very pick me. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard with editorial though, because and let me ask you this: like when you're thinking about the pages of Food and Wine and and mm-hmm. on, all the online content that you work on, you kind of have to pick a side. You kind of have to have a point of view, right? Yes. And have some kind of argument. For sure. I mean, I personally enjoy a lot of natural wine. I think over the years, as I've tried more, I've kind of maybe figured out what aspects of natural wine excite me and what aspects are just like really good branding or this looks great on Instagram or, you know, they have a great distributor that's gotten them into every list in the city or lots of bottle shops. But for me, I think I am definitely still excited about it and interested in it. And I really enjoy having conversations with the producers that are doing it I'm going to say like here for the right reasons, like The Bachelor, but like truly they're here, like they're here for the right reasons. They're not like just looking to ride the marketing train. You know, Mm -hmm. the folks that put together things like raw wine, like there are producers there that really, really care about what natural wine means and aren't just looking to like be buzzy, if that makes sense. I love it. You have multiple certifications. We'll get into that. I want to, I want to dive into your wine background, but I have Mm -hmm. a few more topics. N.A. Beer, quite exciting I'll be honest with you. I it's all part of my job. Beer is like the thing that I feel I am the least bit of an expert. Yeah, on. it's a little too like gassy farty for you. I mean, it's my brother-in-law, both of my brothers-in-law are like really really into beer and so I learn a lot from them. Yeah. Um but I don't have a ton of like I enjoy Miller High Life. Yeah, no, I respect <laughs> it. You know, listen, like you can't just Like I like a Corona. 
I mean, listen, you, I was like, listen, listen, it's okay. I'm like, my heart is like kind of breaking. I know. I'm sorry. I, I am open to, to, I, that is a room of, there's room for me to grow. In yeah. <laughs> I respect the honesty too. And yes. I'm like, you know, I don't know everything. I hire great beer writers. Agree. And that's what editorial is about. You can't know everything, especially sure. if you're like working in the world of drinks. Uh, what about like water? Ooh, I mean, I love polar seltzer. <laughs> yeah, like let's go. Yeah, yeah I'm agree. from I'm from Massachusetts. Yeah. I love polar. I think it's the best seltzer, and I will stand by that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were talking off mic about Vichy waters. Not a fan. I mean, they're just I want I want to like them because it feels like the cool kids like Psalms like them, but yeah. I just they're not they're just not I don't think of it as water. It's something else. It's definitely in its own category. Yeah. I I was thinking about the the Stewart's Vichy. Mm. They have their own version of it, the Stewart's gas station chain, which is wow. Yeah, like if I were just like really thirsty, that wouldn't do it for me. I think that would just be confusing. Yeah. Or okay. like I don't know if I like gave it to my dog, which maybe that's like not. It probably, probably eh, no, I think it's a good idea. I think give it a to shot. Get, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, uh, quote, we're calling it now. The espresso tonic is the drink of the summer. Okay, you wrote that. That's I did not. No, well, um, I wrote the headline. The story is written. Right, that's what I meant. You wrote that headline. Correct. Yeah, you wrote that. I mean, know that you can't write every story. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, is no, great. that was written by our um, social media editor, Merlin Miller, who is incredibly talented. Shout out to Merlin Miller. I love that. And we'll link to it in the show notes. What's going on with the espresso tonic? The espresso tonic is great. I mean, it's, you know, it's got all the elements of a, like an iced Americano or not, you know, whatever, an iced caffeinated beverage, but then it's got a little bit of sweetness and some bubbles from tonic. It's great. It looks cool. It's frothy. It's really easy to make. Yeah. I encountered it in Korea at a place called Matt's Cafe in Gangnam and I, it's in the cookbook in Korea world. Mm. And I, they actually had an, more of an orange syrup. Involved mm-hmm. with it. Actually, Ashley yeah, people Rod- flavor them. People flavor it. So they had an orange peel and an orange syrup. Actually, Ashley Rodriguez from Boss Barista, she helped develop that recipe. Oh, amazing. Book. I can't wait to see it. it I just think that um, espresso tonic is such a great afternoon drink. It's amazing. And it's also another, you know, it's in the vein of you want something that is going to be like a little bit fancier and it's really easy to whip up. Like you could have a bunch of these at brunch, whatever. It's a great drink. Yeah. And people have really, really responded to that story. It's it's done incredibly well. Nice. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So is there a drink that you think deserves more shine? Ooh, is there a drink that deserves more shine? I mean, like a cocktail? Could be anything. I know this is a broad question. I'm it sorry. is a broad question. No, it's that's like, okay. Like Sunny D needs no, that's not the one. Well, I mean, my favorite cocktail is a sidecar. Yeah. Like I that was my like at my wedding, my husband and I each did a signature cocktail. His was a mojito, which yeah. was very popular with everyone. Yeah. And then mine was a sidecar, and my friends ordered it to be nice to me. <laughs> it wasn't um, selling that well. <laughs> no, people were like, oh, Oset, why? <laughs> and someone made like a grandma from Princess Diaries joke, which <laughs> is fine. Um, yeah, I love the sidecar. I think I, I really love a drink in a coupe glass. Mm-hmm. I find that we should all use more coupe glasses. I don't know that they're underrated. I feel like people use them a lot, but... I like using coops at home. Yeah. Like I have a set of coops that hold up in the dishwasher. I Ooh. use them constantly. It's the made-in coop set. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Made-in glassware is really good. That's Shout great. Dishwasher safe coop? Yeah, exactly. They're perfect. I have like a set of, I think I have a set of two and I just like a two boxes. So they're 12 total and I use them all the time. That's dope. I don't drink anymore, but Friend 75 out of a coop, that's a good choice. Mm, I like that a lot. Very fancy. Yeah, yeah. try, try. Big now, fan. What about um, in the NA world? Is there a drink that you feel like? deserves a little more credit. 
Interesting. I mean, I think that there are some really interesting non-alcoholic sparkling wines out there. We did a big tasting around the holidays because obviously, you know, when it comes time for New Year's or whatever you celebrate in December and January, people want to buy bubbles for a special occasion. And I wanted to do a non-alcoholic tasting because, you know, whatever, maybe you're not drinking now or ever. And um, there are some really good N.A. bubbles that I think, you know, aren't sparkling cider or grape juice or whatever. Um, there's this brand French Bloom. I really enjoy some of cool. their NA sparklers. So is it dealkalized or is it? It's dealkalized. Yeah. Right, and cool. we actually ran a story explaining what dealkalization looks like yeah. um, because the way a wine can be made without booze, there's a couple of different avenues you can take. And that actually matters a lot. Yeah, and then the NA beer world too. I think of um, this dealkalized category that is just so fascinating because yeah, like sometimes it really nails it, and sometimes it really doesn't. And wine is even harder it mm-hmm. seems. for sure. I mean, because making wine with booze is confusing to people. So then when you're making it without yeah. booze, they're like, okay, so like the fermentation does what? You're yeah. you're doing what with the yeast? Well, structure <laughs> is part of the alcohol, right? Like structure. Well, let's get into your your background in wine because you are certified. So what is what is that all about? I feel certification is is a cool thing to have, but you maybe don't necessarily need to have it. No, you definitely don't need to have it. I think the biggest reason I did it was a confidence thing for myself, you know, as someone who is on a regular basis writing or now more often editing stories about wine, I think having that education makes me better at my job and it makes me kind of trust my own judgment more. So it's it wasn't like anyone at Food & Wine was like, you need to go do the certification to have this job. I, you know, yeah. it was something I did for me. It makes perfect sense. Um, Yeah, and it was good. So I did level two and level three of the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, known as the WSET. Um, So, yeah, level two, I think they call intermediate, and then three is advanced. So what's the test like for level three? So for level three, there's a blind tasting. um, Some There's like an essay portion, a blind tasting portion, and then a multiple choice exam, and then some like fill-in-the-blank stuff. You kill it, you crush it, you ace it. I I, I passed it with I think merit. <laughs> oh, there you go. I like it. you're very yeah. you're very you know not not bragging or anything. No no no. I think yeah. It was it's like a like a two hour production. You sit, you do it. Um, cool. Yeah, it's fun. It must have been fun, you know, like to learn and and also just have to study for it. Yeah, I studied during the pandemic. I was already drinking a lot, so yeah. then I was drinking a lot educationally. Yeah. I mean, having access to our wine room was super helpful. I will say, like. I think the the challenge of studying for something like that is access to samples. And we're really fortunate that producers send us wine a lot. And I got to do my blind sort of tasting prep with mm-hmm. what we have. Is there a next level that you're going to go to? There's a level four, which is the diploma. Um, I don't think, at least right now, I don't have plans to do it, mainly because I think a lot of that exam is focused a bit more towards the business of wine and, you know, whether it's working in hospitality or working yeah. in the business. And I think editorially, level three is kind of where you want to be. It's given me what I want, but I wouldn't say like never. I mean, there's a, a lot of future. I mean, okay, I, I ask a lot of writers this, and I get a variety of answers. Mm-hmm. Would you consider opening your own restaurant, wine bar, something in that in that field? I I don't think I would open my own restaurant or bar. I would. I have like toyed with the idea. I don't know, way down the line of doing something like some kind of bottle shop education space of sort. Like, I really enjoy talking to people about wine and helping them figure out what they like about it and helping them feel 
like, okay asking questions about it. So I think working in that capacity with the producers and people who are just figuring out what they're into would be fun. Um, I don't I think covering chefs and restaurants makes me really daunted by the prospect of getting into that. Same. Same. Great way to burn like lots of money. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. But I think like opening like a there are some bottle shops that were really formative for me when I was figuring out what I liked. And so I'd love to create a space like that someday. That's cool. So you are a first generation Turkish American food and bev writer. I mean, that is uh, that is really the background is unique in food writing. I feel like there (laughs) and 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 I would like to know, like. In terms of looking at Turkey's vast food culture, what is something that maybe our listeners don't quite understand about Turkey? Yeah, you know, I think that there are a lot of wonderful writers who cover Turkish food and, you know, the culinary scene in cities like Istanbul or Izmir because they're on the ground there. And I am always really excited to read their work. I think that something that gets lost in translation sometimes is just how big Turkey is. Like, you yeah. know, it's not it's not all one kind of it, it's literally I mean, Istanbul is split across two continents. There's a lot of different influences. There's a border that is much more Middle Eastern and then there's more European side. And so I think the sheer diversity yeah. of the country sometimes gets lost and you just kind of like aren't sure what bucket to put it in with like Mediterranean versus Middle Eastern. Yeah, versus, I, I cha- yeah. I'm challenged. I've never <laughs> been there. I've always wanted to go. And yeah. I've been challenged to, to write about it um, and feel like I'm really accurately portraying it. I mean, are there dishes that maybe we, we don't quite know as like a, a general audience? You know, something that always sort of intrigues me is everyone knows what manta or a lot of people are familiar with manta. Um, I'm always intrigued by how manta in the States is always it's pre- presented to me oftentimes as like more of a pierogi, like a large dumpling. They're supposed to be like the size of your fingernail. They're That's what I was really thinking. Tiny. tiny, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I've been to multiple places. I mean, I don't eat out at Turkish restaurants very often, but if I feel like I've seen restaurants that are like trying to take some Turkish influences and they're just making manta in like a large dumpling, like wonton sense. And I'm like, this is confusing. This is. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not going to really turn down manta. No, personally. I'll eat it. But yeah. I'm just like, that's not really yeah. how I grew up eating yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> is there like a spice profile that you could that describes Turkish food? I mean, it's not – there's not a lot of heat, I would say. There's a lot of – I mean, the the spices that I associate with a lot of Turkish food are like sumak is there a lot. There's yeah. a lot of cumin. I would say a lot of like urfa, chili, pepper is definitely – but that's mm-hmm. like – that's a flavorful heat as opposed to just like heat. It's very sweet. I mean, totally. urfa is very sweet. Yeah, or – right, or kind of just like having more of a flavor profile instead of just here's something that's going to blow your – taste buds off yeah um so yeah <laughs> okay i have to ask you i've asked a lot of editors this are there banned words at food and wine <laughs> so we do have like a list of terms that we just, we try not to use as much because they're just over i mean it's things like delicious yeah. we try not to do that i wouldn't call it like banned but it's no. like let's not do that i personally really don't like the word quaffable I tr- I don't know why it comes up in beverage writing a lot and like no shade to my like wonderful writers who do use the word quaffable, but I will edit it out. Yeah, it's definitely getting the red line here as well. It tastes same with unctuous, same with other things. Correct. This quaffable, tipple, sipper. Um, Those are words. Um, Another thing, like it's easy to describe almost every beverage as refreshing. Yeah. I mean, you could be like that glass of gin neat is refreshing. 
Right. Like there are very few things that aren't refreshing. So at the end of the day, like I'll sometimes read a story that a writer has done a tasting of, say, 30 wines. And if we're describing 14 of them as refreshing, we are not describing them. (laughs) Exactly. There's a real math there. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, we can say refreshing like twice. So pick your pick your refreshings. Okay. so if you're asked to do the drinks for a backyard barbecue Mm. or an event and you're like the friend who's going to, quote unquote, do drinks. Said, yeah. what are we doing this summer? What are we doing this summer? I mean, I love I love easy bubbles, like bubbles that not necessarily like let's ball out on champagne, but like, you know, like a Lambrusco, a chilled, a chilled red that has some bubbles to it. I'm not necessarily saying like everyone go buy pet nat, because I know we already discussed that, <laughs> but you could do that. I also think there is some fun bottled spritzes on the market. There's this new new one called Almare, it's A L M A R E, mm-hmm. and it's like basically a pre-made spritz in a bottle, and it's from like um, it's the importer that works with them also works with some really great wineries, so it's like you know good stuff in there, street not, cred yeah. exactly, and it tastes fantastic. And so I think those kinds of like pre-made spritz options like that work really well for backyard. I love that. What about batching a cocktail for the backyard? Is I love some... batching a cocktail. Dude, I do too. It's like yeah, super I don't drink and I love batching cocktails. It's like really fun to like, you know, figure out the math and, yeah. and figure out the flavors. No, I batched um the last time I had a party, I batched French 75s and I just did the mixture and then had people top with bubbles as they wanted and then I had some NA bubbles for people who wanted like a lower ABV French 75 and that worked out. Uh-huh. Um yeah, I'm all about modifying ABV. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have a low alcohol bubble to go on top yeah, of the, yeah, the, the yeah. Yeah, so ass. good. We did, uh, yeah, we did them with uh, yuzu. Oh, nice. I love that. Oh, a twisted yuzu or just like yuzu? Sir? Like I got mailed a bunch of yuzu with some, nice. like a brand sent me some yuzu and I put it in a front. It's so good. Yeah. No, good choice. <laughs> um, where are you traveling this summer? What's, what's on your plan? So I am um, the classic in June. 40th anniversary oh, of yeah, Food and Wine Classic. Oh, yeah, Food Classic. I've been there yes, before. Yes, yes. Um, and then I'm going to New Orleans in July for Tales of the Cocktail. Right. I haven't been in some time, but our um, yeah, our, our team wants to kind of go check yeah. out what's going on, so I'm going to do that in July. And then I'm going to Columbia in August. Oh, right on. Yeah, to spend some time in Cartagena for a wedding, which I'm oh, really excited about. That's a great lineup. It, I know. It's like hot, <laughs> hot, and hotter. I know, I know. Yeah. And I, yeah, so I've I've purchased a lot of linen. But yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. What a it. great plan for summer. I feel New Orleans in July. I've done that a number of times. It tells the cocktail. It's, it's really humbling <laughs> for, you, for you and your deodorant. It's like people who wear natural deodorant and go to tails. I like have a lot of questions. Oh for my you. gosh. I ended up at Coop's a lot. I love that place. Coop's or Felix. Oh, love. Those are my yeah. guys. I love New Orleans. But yeah, so I'm really excited about Columbia. I've never been. So this will be my first time. And then I'm hoping to spend a good bit of time in the Berkshires this summer as oh, well. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So let's talk about cookbooks. You know, you, at Food & Wine, you you cover cookbooks so mm-hmm. well and you always have great seasonal lists yeah. and you do features. What is exciting you and maybe the office right now in terms of cookbooks? Yeah, I actually um, am really, really excited about some of the vegetable-centric books that are coming out. I really enjoy Susan Spungen's style of cooking, and she has um, a veggie-centric book. I mean, a lot of her cooking highlights vegetables, but this that one, um, I think it's called Veg Out. OG legend there yeah. with Susan Spungen. I love Susan. <laughs> yeah, I've met Susan once, and and what a character. Yes, yeah, for sure. Force enjoy, enjoy Exactly. So much respect for Susan. So excited about that. Um, Hetty McKinnon also mm-hmm. has Tender Heart coming out. Beautiful I love, book. yes, I love Hetty's storytelling. She's also just like an awesome person. 
but I gift her books. I, I gift family to people pretty often. So Tenderheart is like massive in the best way possible. It yes. feels a really significant book for her. It feels like she's put a lot of her heart and soul yep. into it. And I think that her style of cooking, which again is very veg centric, is really beautiful. So I'm excited about those two um, in particular. Yeah, I love those choices. Um, this is Taste the Name of the Show. And we ask often our guests, is there something, is there a topic? Is there a food? Is there something that you consider yourself a tastemaker in? Well, okay, so it's not a food. I really enjoy shopping for things online that are secondhand and getting good de- Like, I enjoy personal shopping for people, yeah. if that makes sense. It's absolutely. You're like a leader in that field. I mean, I, I I feel like I have helped friends find, like, really good outfits on The Real Real or, like, a weird vintage ashtray on Cherish. Like, those yeah. are sites that I set alerts for and spend a lot of time on. Are you Depop? I don't use Depop um, because you can't return things on Depop, no. and I am morally opposed to buying things full price and final sale. The Real Real, for example, charges you for returns, but I'll pay the return fee. Like, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I really, really enjoy haggling over things, and I like, I love a bargain. So. I love it. Do you go into the eBay universe? I sometimes? have dipped my toes in the eBay universe. Yeah. But again, returns are tricky there. Yeah. You can't it's really the same. do it. You yeah. Can't really but. Do it. But I I feel like my favorite text to get from a friend is like, I have X event in two weeks and I don't want to spend more than $75. Find me a gown like that. That's and you're game to do this. Oh, I'm so game. If, if you don't know me and you want to send me that message, you can do that. Yeah. I'll do that. Your social profile will be in the notes and you'll definitely. Great. Take it. Yeah. Let me know. I will find you sequins. I will find you shoes. We can get a bag. It'll be great. I love this. Have you ever thought about doing like an editorial project tied to this? I don't know what that would look like. Like, it's it's so out of the realm of what we do at Food & Wine. I know. <laughs> it would have to be its own thing. I mean, there are some newsletters that do things like this that I really, really love following. Like, yeah. Harling Ross has one called Gumshoe where she does basically this, and she does a phenomenal job with it. Um, but, yeah, I feel like the world doesn't need my Substack. stack. Re- respect. I, 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 we're editorial <laughs> people at heart. We are always working at it. To have, like, another project is maybe not. No, it's cool. I'm not going to put <laughs> another inbox. I'm not going to put another email in people's inbox. Yeah, my- bless you. <laughs> we all deserve better. Is there a city in America that we are maybe not thinking about in terms of food? I ask because Food & Wine is so great at traveling America and covering the nooks and crannies. I mean, I love New England so much. Yeah. And I think that there is a lot of really great food to be found in the Berkshires. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that's like off the beaten path per se, but I feel like New Yorkers go to Hudson and the Catskills yeah. a lot. But towns like North Adams or Lenox or Lee, like there, there is some really fantastic food and also like the access to good produce and small makers there is really incredible. Um, so I am really, really a fan. No, shouts to Berkshires. It's gl- it's great that you're calling it out. I feel like many of our <laughs> listeners might not be able to put it like on the map, yeah. like point to it on the map. It's it's basically like go to the Catskills, but Massachusetts. Yeah. And so it's like, <laughs> it's much more chill. I think, I think it's generally. Wait, wait, you're coming for the Catskills? I mean, I feel like the Catskills has gotten fancy. Oh my gosh. It's so interesting. <laughs> Let's go there. I feel like no, like if you go to Calicoon. I know this is hitting you personally. It's, I don't live in the Catskills, thankfully. Um, I have <laughs> like Wi-Fi, thankfully. No, I mean, if you go to like Calicoon or like, yeah. I feel like some of these Catskills sounds, they get like a little bit of ink mm-hmm. and they're not that fancy. They're, no, they're but there's really one humble. resort. Well, yeah, there's like all those resorts. Sure. Right, right. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm, like, I do. 
And it's like I see them and they're like, you know, $900 a night and they're super bougie and then they have like, you know, just this incredible Instagram presence and you're like, how did this happen? The Berkshire doesn't really have that. Respect. So we're unpacking <laughs> an important topic. Yes, there's like multiple resorts yes. of that nature in the Catskills. Yeah, which are beautiful. I'll go. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll Invite go. me. Invite, Invite me. me and Matt. I'll go. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go play some golf. I, lo- <laughs> I love golfing up there. And I just think the Catskills, it's not. It's like a very, it's like wild and wilderness. And I love it up there. I love driving around and Roscoe. I mean, these are great towns, and like they're they're less discovered than you'd think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my like my no. Catskill tourism board moment. But like, I forget. I think it was last year. My inbox was full of pitches about like Kingston, New York. Yeah. And I was like, "What's happening?" That's up the street from me, right? And I was right, which like I guess is maybe good for property. I don't know. It's just like Kingston had a moment. No, you, know? you can definitely talk about Kingston. It's 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 <laughs> it's a it's a great town. It is. Um, there's been yeah. I feel but there's I'm, a lot of investment in Kingston. Like it felt like very concentrated and then it was on social media. Yeah. No. And I'm glad we're talking about this out loud because it's important that some of these towns, they have these like blasts of presence, social media, TikTok, et cetera. But still, they're they're like humble towns. I mean, it's an issue for Portland, Maine. I think of Portland as, yeah. you know, I love Portland and have spent a, a good bit of time there. And I feel like there are a lot of folks who live there who are kind of like, we are now being priced out of living in Portland because the influx of people from Boston or New York who are like here because there are amazing restaurants in Portland, but that drives up the cost of living and makes it unsustainable. So I know. anyway, I don't know. How, it feels like this got like sadder. <laughs> yeah, it got a little bit sad and real. I just think for me, yeah. you know, visit these towns and open your eyes and there's a lot going on that maybe isn't on Instagram mm-hmm. or um you know, being written about in, in publications, I feel like there's definitely some great things written about in publications, but yeah. you definitely, for Catskills or any part of the Hudson Valley, there's there's another side to right, it. Right, there's a real impact. Like, yeah, after you post, it's kind of like, okay, so then what happens? Exactly. And how does that translate five years later? I love this topic. We're going to continue it. Um, Oset, we asked all guests if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book. What would that be? Wow. <laughs> um, I really like the idea of a, a book that has like, okay, here's one bottle. Here are 15 different things you can make with it. And not just like in a here are 15 different cocktails you can make with it. But like I really enjoy using vermouth to like caramelize shallots and put it in grilled cheese. So it's like kind of a multi-purpose sort of approach that way. And I feel like there's like maybe a sustainability angle to that, but I think that would just require a lot of tinkering to see, okay, like, can you add this thing to say an olive oil cake? What happens when you do that? What happens when you make a spritz? Will it freeze? Like That's so (laughs) exciting. I think something like that would be really fun. I would definitely need some friends with like more culinary chops to help me with that because I don't have a recipe developing. You got friends. You got friends. I have some friends though. You can do it. Um, But I think that would be really, really fun because I really enjoy seeing what I can do with alcohol. That's not just drinking it. I like cooking and baking with alcohol a lot. It's (laughs) And we all, we have the bottles around. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ingredients that we need to use. No, a Campari soak olive oil cake, the Melissa Clark recipe. That's like my wedding cake was modeled after that. It's really, really, really great point. We, 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 we bake, we cook, we braise with alcohol all the time. So good. Oh, is that Barbara Winter? Thank you for joining. Thanks so much for having me. 
This Is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 